we're, we're in our, back into our regular series in First Timothy, and um, I'm in over my head. <laughs> We've gotten to a passage of, of scripture here that pushes us, it, it, just, it just pushes us into considering the mind and the heart of God in a way that that uh, you get the sense that you're walking into or wading into mysterious waters. Um, I wrestled with uh, this text so long I couldn't even come up with a title for the message. That's why it's not in the bulletin. But finally, I, I'm calling it God's Desire. But who who am I or who is anyone else to tell you about God's desires as if as if I understand everything about the mind of God before actually looking at this passage I I want us to look in Job this is where my my mind went because because we're we're thinking about the desires within the heart of God and his purposes and how they intermingle and and how how can we know this if you want to, to turn to Job, Job chapter 38, if not, I'll, I'll just read there. It's on page 644 in, the, in our Bibles here. But Job is a long book where Job has suffered and uh, people have walked into his life to try to help him. They think they're trying to help him figure out why the suffering, why the suffering in your life. And some of them thought, well, it's because you've sinned. And Job says, not because of that. And there's a long book. It's a long, long book in the Bible dealing with, with all the thoughts and the feelings that rise up within us as we suffer. And it pushes the people in the story of Job. It's a true account. But in the story of Job to wrestle with, uh, with God, how does he think? And, and what, why does he do what he does? And Job, although he in the end turns out to be the hero, as compared to his other friends that were trying to counsel him, God still had something to teach Job. And uh, Job had spoken a little too confidently about the mind of God. We get to chapter 38, verse 1, and God comes in a whirlwind to Job, who has defended himself valiantly against these other people and what they've said. But, but listen to what he, God says in verse 38. Then it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Well, you know you're in trouble when God comes to you and he starts that way. So you, you know what you're... So you, so you understand everything, right, Job? Verse 3. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. So teach me, Job, God is saying, since you know so much. And remember, he's the, he's the hero in the story. The other guys are really in trouble. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? It's interesting that, that some, uh, some scientists speak so confidently about how everything began. 
On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors, when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and I set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Saying to Job, who set up this earth? And answer all these questions, Job. You understand it? Verse 12 says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? I think Job is starting to feel a little intimidated now. <clears throat> he goes on then look at 16 have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep and of course god is is saying implying by this i have god is saying i've done these things have you verse 19 where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness where is its place light and dark you understand all that 25 who has cleft a channel for the flood or away for the thunderbolt. 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Those are constellations of stars. Or loose the cords of Orion? The stars. Job. The universe. You understand it all? Guys, I not only understand it, I, I design it, I move it from place to place. Well, this goes on for quite a while. Then look in chapter 39, verse 26. <clears throat> he, God just keeps giving him examples, questioning, do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know this? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? It's by your understanding that the hawk soars? It's, it's, it's one thing to say, I think I understand how it works. It's another one to say, it's by my understanding that it works. And then look in chapter 40, verse 1. This is, it says, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. You've found fault with me, God is saying to, to, to Job. You've found a fault with God. So God, there's some fault in him. There's something that he's done. That's been wrong or there's some way that he works that you little Job, you now look up to God and say, that's that's not right. I don't agree with that. He says, well, go ahead and reprove God. Then he says. In verse three, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, <laughs> this is great. I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice, I will add nothing more. I think Job's realizing, you know what? I'm facing God for who he is and I need to just be quiet and take in. This isn't a time for me to give out. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. God wasn't done yet. He says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? There are sometimes 
that we think God's doing the wrong thing or why would you allow this to happen or that? And there are some passages of scripture, I think we're going to see them this morning, where we read them and we, we think, how can that be? I don't, I don't quite understand this. And, and um, God is saying, you're going to annul my judgment just so that you can justify your own self? So that you can feel good about the way you feel that the universe ought to work? But you're just a little man. God is, is God. Then look how it, how it ends, chapter 42, Job 42, <clears throat> verse 1. Because God just keeps going, challenging Job about the, how great God is and how small Job's understanding really is in the face of God. And he says, then Job answered the Lord and said, so now this is Job's response, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you now, Job is saying to God, I will ask you, you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. It's interesting that even here in God's revealing of himself to Job, Job's still retracting and saying, I really don't understand everything. Even though you've shown me much about yourself, I don't understand you, God. You're you're way beyond, you're way beyond me. My thoughts went to this interaction between God and Job in thinking about the passage of this morning. You can turn there if you wish it's in first timothy chapter two because it speaks about god's desire and sometimes we can speak and uh, preachers are especially guilty of this sometimes we speak too confidently about the unseen truths that are buried in the heart and mind of god he has revealed much to us And we take what he has revealed to us, and yet he has left much unrevealed. And so I think that we need to think and speak with reverence about when we begin to touch on the mysteries of what's inside the mind of God. How does some of what he has revealed in scripture, how does some of it fit together? We walk with reverence here, I think. I want to read... Chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, verses 1 to 7. But we're going to focus this morning on verses 3 and 4. It says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 
I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Our focus this morning, there will be three and four, and I'll read them again. It says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want to make just a few comments here uh, before delving into some of the mystery. Uh, It starts off with the word this, and one of the questions is, what does he mean? It says, this is good and acceptable. What is good and acceptable? Well, you notice that the passage starts off in verse 1 about praying. And we talked about this a while back, that, that he's saying we need to be praying. And when we pray, we pray for everybody and all kinds of people, all the way up to the kings and those who are in, a, in authority. But we're praying, he says, also, so that we'll lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. One of the ways we pray for our governmental leaders as we pray that that we have the freedom and the peace to live as christians as we ought and to proclaim the gospel as as we ought that's what we're we're praying that whatever else the government does it leaves us with that freedom and so the this is a combination <clears throat> it, it's this is the praying he's saying this praying is good and acceptable in the sight of God. But you remember, it's, it's a praying that we will have freedom and tranquility so that we can live as Christians and proclaim the gospel. So that is good and acceptable in the sight of God. That's the context, and we'll remember that and come back to that in a moment about prayer. But then also look at the end of the verse, verse 4 says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I, wa- I want to just uh, mention one thing. and uh, uh, It struck me as I read that phrase, come to the knowledge of the truth. And I thought, now, what does that phrase have to say to a post-modern mind? You know, there's a lot talked about these days about us being quickly becoming a post-modern society. And without dragging us down into the minutia of what all that means, and I'm not even sure of it all myself. Neither are the people that write about it, by the way. Um, but this postmodern mind, you know, there's part of it is that there, there's, a, uh, there's not really a truth that, that reigns supreme through everybody. There's no truth with a capital T, no, uh, no objective um, universal truth. It's everyone has their own version of truth because of the, their own perception and where they come from. So there's a bunch of little T truths, but no one big T truth. I think that's interesting. What do they do with this? That God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's interesting here too, in a postmodern mind is you're not sure that you can really know the truth. But this is saying it's God's desire that you come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, even in the face of the awesomeness of God, which we've seen in Job, there is truth and you can know it. Amen? There is truth and you can know it. And this is significant. The proclaimers of that truth are not by just by the fact that they're proclaiming it. They're not being arrogant or maneuvering for power. 
You see, in a postmodern mind, I've gotten, I've gotten emails and stuff. I get feedback every once in a while, you know, from preaching. And people from the younger generation are telling me that you, you, just, you just can't say that. <laughs> you just, you know, and, and what's happening is, is that our younger generations are, are, are thinking you, it's, it's arrogant to stand up and say, this is true for you. You can't, you can't do that because nobody can do that. That's what a postmodern mind is thinking. But God is saying he wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. There is truth and you can know it. And therefore, the one who's proclaiming it, he, he might or she might be arrogant as a person. That's bad. But just the fact that they're proclaiming it doesn't make them arrogant or it doesn't mean that they're maneuvering for power over you. It just means they're telling you the truth. Ah, that could be a whole nother sermon, but we'll we'll stop there. So I thought that was interesting bookends, though. The context is prayer, prayer so that the gospel can be proclaimed and that we can live as we ought. And it also strikes a a very uh, challenging note to those of us all who have been influenced by postmodern thinking. But now let's get into this mystery. Look again at verse 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, when I read that verse, even though there's nothing in the text itself that brings up the, the uh, truth of the scripture that God has chosen people for salvation... Because we read the Bible and we know those verses, this great question comes rising up. How can God choose those who are saved and yet desire all men to be saved? Question ever come to your mind? If it hasn't, I'll just quit and uh, we can make this a lot easier. <laughs> it's a real question, is it not? And here we we come into um, the mind of God. And I walk with reverence and I hope I walk like Job and say, I really, I really don't understand. But what little I understand, I'll try to pass on to you and pray that as we think about these things, God will just help us and to enrich, if nothing else, just to enrich our view of him and how great he is. How can God be powerful and wise and sincerely concerned with everyone, even though he has chosen only some to be saved? Right? How does that fit together? Well, let's remind ourselves about the two sets of scripture, because there are scripture passages that speak about God's choosing of people. And there are scripture passages that speak about God's desire for all. So let's look at them all, right? If you want to look with me, you can. I'm going to read this. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, is a a famous passage that speaks much about God's choosing. 
sorry, I don't have the page number there, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, there, there it is, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Then he says, in love, he predestined us. Again, there's this working of God, a determining of God. He says, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Sometimes um, people wrestle with the with the teaching of God's choosing of people and sometimes the the reason they wrestle with it is because they've heard someone who hasn't somebody who's hard and cold to talk about it or someone who's who's presented it in a way that's not not quite congruent with the scriptures notice the words love and kindness are all mixed in here paul the apostle paul has no trouble talking about god predestining people at the same time he's talking about god's love it's all mixed in whatever and i don't i don't say there's no mystery in this but i'm saying whatever it means it it has nothing to do with some idea of god not being loving because it's right there it's in the same sentence in love He predestined us. And it's all according to the kind intention of his will, his kindness. And then look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is marvelous. You see, it's God working in sinners' lives. Sinners who would not turn to him apart from God's work in them and for them. And God, in eternity past, chooses and then works. And it all glorifies his grace, because it's all grace. Without our salvation beginning in, in God, in God's mind, it wouldn't have begun anywhere. But he freely now bestows grace on us in, his, in, in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And, and in, all, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention. There it is again, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. It's all to his glory. It's all to His the glory of his grace. A few things we note about this truth that God God chose is that that he he chose people. It has, what what is the reasons of his choosing? And we know almost nothing about that. It's hidden in his person. Why did he choose? Well, it has something to do with his love, and he has something to do with his glory. And that's all I know. Amen? 
It's not that he looked forward and chose us because we were good. Or he chose one person because they were better than another or something. There's, there's no hint of that in scripture. It's just saying that is, it's wrapped up in a mystery inside of him of concerning his love and his glory and the glory of his grace. Somewhere buried in his heart, there were the motives and he, and he chose. But does that mean then that he, he doesn't care for those that he didn't choose? See, that's our problem in our mind. Well, listen to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. It says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? And then later in, in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. God, you see, is saying here, on the other hand, he's saying, I I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is he contradicting himself? Is there a contradiction? Well, then why didn't you choose them all? Why didn't you choose us all? That's the, that's the wrestling that we have. Then back on the other side, in Romans chapter 9, I'll read a little bit in Romans chapter 9. Remember he was talking about Isaac and Esau, the twins. Verse 10, he says, not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Um, Jacob and Esau is what I meant to say. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, see, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So you see, the, his choosing of Jacob rather than Esau had, it didn't have anything to do with them, and apparently, like they didn't, one didn't earn it rather than the other. It's in the hidden purposes of God. He, he, he chooses one way rather than the other. Later in verse 14, it says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Saying, is, it, is this fair? That's right. These are some of the questions that rise up. Verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then in 19, he says, so you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Here's the big question. Am I losing you yet? They're saying, well, God chose this guy and he didn't chose that guy. So then Paul, see, Paul knows he's. He knows what our questions are. He puts them right in there. He said, I know what you're thinking. I'll write it down. Well, then how can God find fault in this guy if he didn't choose him? That's what he's saying. How can he find fault in him if he just chose him and not him? You know what his answer is? You're not going to like it. And it's, you're going to be a little bit like Job. You're not going to like this answer. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? 
that the, God's answer basically is, you're not allowed to ask that question. You're, you're, or there must be something in it, you see, that we, we think there's something about us and our concern for ourselves and our preconceived notions of what's fair and what's not. Something in there is askew. Sin has altered us so that we ask even questions that we shouldn't ask. And God's saying, it just reminds me of Job again. He says, who are you, Job? You're going to instruct me. Put your hand in your mouth and listen, is what God, God is saying. There is still this person in the mystery of it. This person's still responsible. Okay, he's still responsible for his life and his choices. And, but then we come back to the question that I started with. If God desires all to be saved, yet he's chosen some, how does that fit? And we're bal- trying to balance this out. Listen to 2 Peter 3.9. It's a great verse. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Does anybody else's brain hurt? God has chosen and he says, but I don't wish any to perish. Just two more, one example now from each side again, shorter verses this time. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, it says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you. You see, he, he chose you. Christ went to the cross and died. And then he sent his spirit to call you. You see, so he's working now. He's working all this purpose. It says, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord in Jesus Christ. It all fits, Paul says, by the spirit. God has chosen and he works according to his purposes. And then we have... 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's our tension. We have passages on on both sides. They look like two different sides to us. So how do we put this together? Well, I'm going to give you a suggested solution. And as I do this, I, I do it with reverence and I, I do it knowing that I'm sure I don't have the final say on this. But, but again, I think it's a worthy exercise for us to think about these things, that, our, that we let God's word shape our minds and make us uh, think more like he really is. Some people eliminate the question, this problem, how can this be true and this be true? They eliminate the question by saying that the Bible has errors. That's pretty easy. The book's got mistakes in it. That takes care of that. We don't have to worry about it. What's the problem? It doesn't matter trying to figure it out because the book's just a book and it's got mistakes in it. People disagree. Contradictions. Well, that's an option, but it's not the option we choose. Amen? This is God's word. He's given it to us. It doesn't have mistakes in it. It doesn't have actual contradictions in it. So we, we don't take that route. Some people uh, t- 
take care of the question by eliminating one side or the other. Some take the idea, they don't, the, the tension looks like you, we can't put it together. So on this side, with God choosing people, we, they take the verses um, and they, re, they, they interpret the verses in such a way that it doesn't actually mean that God from eternity has chosen those he will save. They will interpret it in different ways. Um, and so you, you, in the end, you don't really have a God who has chosen people. And that then takes care of the problem. Now I don't have a problem. On the other hand, there are people on, uh, that really hold to God choosing people. Keep, keep, hang with me, hang with me. And uh, over here, they, just, they say this in such a way that they say, and God doesn't love the people that he doesn't choose. And they, they just eliminate the problem by saying, no, God actually doesn't love everybody. He doesn't. But I have a problem with that, right? Because of the verse we just read. Amen? See, so some people wrestling with the problem, they just, they just eliminate one side or the other, and that's how they try to fix the problem. Now, of course, I'm, being, I'm simplifying this a little bit. Here's the way I suggest we try to solve this or come to grips with it is that we accept the paradox. There's a paradox, I believe, in, in, in Scripture here. What's a paradox? I'm glad you asked. I looked, I looked in, a, in a dictionary. It says a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition, which when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. It looks like it's contradictory on the surface, but there is a way to understand it. Paradoxical means it's something which is apparently inconsistent with itself or with reason, though in fact it is true. How can we understand this? If it really is a paradox that they're both true and there's a way to understand it, how can we do it? I'm going to share one example with you. It's a story from the life of George Washington. And it's just an illustration, but it might help you with this. Uh, and it will not answer all your questions because we're going to be like Job on our face with our hand on our mouth saying, you're God. You are God. Chief Justice Marshall wrote a biography of George Washington called The Life of Washington. And in it, he relates a, uh, an event in the life of George Washington. When he was uh, the commander in chief, there was a major Andre who, had, uh, who was a part of the American forces, and he was, acted as a spy and committed treason against his own troops and against his country. The death warrant arrived at George Washington's desk. And because of being the commander-in-chief, it was up to him. He was the, Andre had been found guilty, and the pen was in George Washington's hands. And he had to decide, was he going to sign this warrant for this man's execution or was he not? Chief Justice Marshall wrote, perhaps on no occasion of his life did the commander-in-chief obey with more reluctance the stern mandate of duty and policy. He wrote that Washington's compassion for Andre was real and profound. So Washington, 
at that moment felt a, a profound and real pity and compassion for Major Andre, but held the pen in his hand, and he had the power to give him life or death. He signed the death warrant. Uh, the writer wrote, Washington's volition, that means his decision, to sign the death warrant of Andre did not arise from the fact that his compassion was slight or feigned, but from the fact that it was rationally counterpoised by a complex of superior judgments, of wisdom, duty, patriotism, and moral indignation. You see, within the heart and mind of George Washington, there was all sorts of motives coming to play. He had genuine compassion for this man. Perhaps, I don't know all the details. It sounds like he actually knew the man. And so he he felt compassion for him. And yet he felt an obligation to justice and wisdom and to the country. There was an indignation about what the man had done, even while there was a compassion in his heart to him. And as he weighed it all, he signed the death warrant. And Major Andre was, was executed. But imagine if, as, as uh, he signed the death warrant and laid the pen down, a defender of Andre accused Washington and said, since you had the power to save him, your pity for him is just hypocritical. For you to say that you have no compassion on him, that's just hypocrisy. You're lying. Would that be true? No, he had a real compassion for the man. But there was a complex combination of motivation and thought and heart that led to the decision for him to die. And to accuse Washington of not being compassionate or not having pity on the man just because he refused to save him would be wrong. You see, it would be wrong. Well, correspondingly, we can think about God. And granted, this is just an illustration, but perhaps it helps us. The absence of a decision to save a person does not mean an absence of compassion for the person. True compassion can be restrained by other motives. And those other motives are unseen by us. They're buried in the heart and mind of God. John Piper said it this way. He said, in his great and mysterious heart, there are kinds of longings and desires that are real. They tell us something true about his character. And yet, yet not all of these longings govern God's actions. And all the while this is happening in, in God's heart, there's no conflict. You see, in, in him, different than George Washington, there's, there's no conflict between these various motives and longings it's it's all right and good and later in heaven we'll see why we'll we'll understand perhaps then but now we don't you see the way the way i hope this is somewhat helpful and the way the way i come at this problem this question that just pops up off the page is that i affirm both truths and i hope you do too i challenge you i i, I offer as a suggestion for you to affirm both truths. On the one hand, God 
chose from eternity who he would save and and then on the other hand he desires all to be saved there's there there's there's truth in 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 all of that and and we find we we wrestle with who our god is not by throwing one or the other out but by taking them together affirming them both and just walking with god and following job and just getting on our knees and saying god you are you are so big I don't understand you, but I worship you. Amen? In closing, I'd like to just say, since we've thought about God's choosing and we've thought about God's desiring all to be saved, I want to mention under both, quickly, it's going to be real quick now that I look at the clock, three strengths or purposes, uh, three blessings, three benefits in our lives of each. I'll go, I'll go on this side first. God's choosing of, of people for salvation. One of the great strengths and purposes of that truth is that it, it humbles man and glorifies God. Amen? It humbles us. And, you know, in the end, salvation is of God. It strikes me that in the, in the scriptures, there's only one who bears the name Savior. And he's not us. It's God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. God saves. Nobody else saves themselves. And the truth about it, the fact that our salvation goes all the way back, it's rooted in the mind of God before he even created the world, that that, that, truth, that truth humbles us and reminds us that we are not, we don't save ourselves. God saves us. And we humble ourselves and we glorify God. Secondly, though, and I hope you I hope you believe this, that the truths, whatever whatever other questions may be rattling around in your mind and heart concerning uh, the fact that God chooses. And, it, and, and there are questions, my friend, there are questions. We haven't even mentioned them all. I just tried to mention one t- this morning. But no matter what your questions, remember this. The truth that God chose you to save you. Is it gives you great comfort to know, I'm going to make it. Amen? I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it to heaven. Because he decided that a long time ago. This salvation thing is not of me. It's of him. Oh, I've believed in Christ. That's a whole other thing. We haven't even talked about that. I have believed, and that belief was mine. It wasn't his. It's mine. But, but he's, he's worked from the beginning to save me. He decided to save me. He sent his son to the cross to take care of my sin. He sent the Holy Spirit then into the world to call me and to draw me to himself so that he took what... Christ did on the cross and he put it onto my life and he saved me. Amen. And he's going to get me all the way to the end of my life. And he's going to get me through those moments of death. And he's going to get me after death to heaven. Amen. It's not depending on you, my friend. And so the doctrine of God's choosing is great comfort. Great comfort to us. It gives us great confidence. And then thirdly, this doctrine of God's choosing gives great motivation for missions and for evangelism. You know, some twist this truth around and say, well, if if you believe that God has chosen some and not others, 
what does that do for your evangel your evangelism and missions that must take the wind out of your sails i say are you kidding me it's a typhoon blowing my sails so hard i can hardly hang on why did why do we go to the sundawi people where there's no believers because we were hoping that some of them maybe we maybe we could talk them into it and they might decide no way buddy we went believing that god had chosen some amen it motivates us. All of the, the major early missionaries of the modern missionary movement were men and women who believed this truth that God had chosen. It motivates mission, if you understand it correctly. Where we go, why do we send people to the Ndengareko people? Because we hope maybe somebody might decide. No, because we know. That God's chosen and he's going to work and save people. We just get to go along for the ride and be a part of it. Amen. It gives great motivation. And then in our, in the, in our community in the Lehigh Valley, God is working. It's not up to these sinners out there. <laughs> it's not up to us sinners, right? It's God who's working and saving. So let's get on board and go and speak and share the gospel and watch what God does. He is working. He is working. Okay, on the other side, strengths and purposes of the teaching of God's universal compassion, that God desires all to be saved, that there's a sense in which we can say without hesitation, God loves everybody. What does that mean? Well, that means, and remember the context of prayer. Number one, we pray for everybody the same. We don't pray for some one way and others another. We pray for everyone and we keep praying for them. And when there are people that aren't saved and we want to see them saved, we keep praying for them. Amen. Because we can, we, because God desires all to be saved. And we, number two, we treat everyone the same. We don't walk around and try to figure out if somebody deserves God's love and care and somebody else doesn't. Right? We don't look at people and size them up on a scale and say, well, I'll deal with those kind of people, but not those. No way. We love God's desires for all. He, he takes no pleasure in the death of the, of the wicked. He desires all to be saved. And we treat everyone the same. There's a, there's a, there's a revelation about the inclination of God's heart here that we see his compassion and his, and his concern for all. And so we adopt that and we pray for everyone and we treat everyone the same. And then thirdly, we speak the gospel to everyone. We speak the gospel to everyone because that's what God wants. Amen. Amen. We're out of time. And that's probably a good thing. So I stopped talking in the face of these truths. My goal for this morning was not to bring confusion, but to make us taste a bit of the mystery of God. Who are we to say we understand exactly how the heart and mind of God works? Amen? We don't know. Let's just take his scripture for what it is and say he teaches us. Now let's worship him. And walk with him and respond as we ought and let him do as he will. And as we go, perhaps he'll shed more light in our little minds and understand a little bit more. And that's okay. But we'll keep walking with him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you. We, we worship you. And we bow before you like Job and say we, we are insignificant. Um, we put our hands in our mouths and accept you for who you are. We do not understand it all, Lord. But we worship you. And thank you that you have saved us. And that your saving of us glorifies your grace and glory. It doesn't glorify ourselves. Now, use us, we ask, in such a way that your great heart and compassion for all people is expressed in the way we pray, in the way we treat people, and in what we say to people. Use us, Lord, to reflect you to the people around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless.